So um, when we were kids, my brother Jamie would read uh, books and stories more than once, and it drove me crazy. Uh, I never understood it. I would argue, you already know what happens, to which he would then reply, yeah, that makes it more interesting the second time. And this probably points out our differences in personality, but I also was thinking about maybe the next adventure to read or the next tree to climb or the next yard to run through or the next little bit of trouble I might get into. But he was always reading books again and watching even movies again. I didn't even like to watch movies a second time. I already knew what was going to happen. So it not only highlights our differences in personality, but also I think it highlights my brother's insightfulness at an early age. So it shouldn't be a surprise that he's given his whole life to literature and he's given it to, um, to communication, he's given it to teaching and to even being a headmaster at a classical school and a communications director now. So I would say that he was right, but he might listen to this later and I don't want to give him that, that leg up. But, um, but I still can't bring myself to read stories more than once, not usually, except the stories of Scripture. And this story in particular, every time I read this story of the burning bush, I feel something different, and I feel something deeper, because I know where this story will go. I know what happens into and out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, where all the cracks in Moses' character will be tested where all the truths about the human heart are going to be laid bare in the belly aching and the brazenness of the Israelites, God's people. Moses will give the balance of his life to lead God's people to a place that he would ultimately not be allowed to go. And it's just interesting, even that alone, to think about this encounter with God, knowing he will not ultimately cross the Jordan into the promised land which is a place God's people were so often reluctant to go, and they were more willing at times to return to their slavery simply because it was familiar and by some measure more manageable. It's interesting to say the least what circumstances that we will accept and even justify to avoid faith and the obedience that it necessarily requires. They are us and we are them. There's also the fact of my own life, and you know, as I'm reading this again now at 45, my own life's played out, I'm getting a clear sense that even though everything changes, everything kind of stays the same, doesn't it? People are people, leaders are leaders, God is God. There's nothing new under the sun, and the older we get, the more suns that rise and set on our lives, the more clearly we can see this, if we're willing. So here's Moses, the shepherd atop Mount Horeb. It won't be the last time because Horeb is actually Mount Sinai. It's another name for Mount Sinai. And after he's led the Israelites out of Egypt, Moses will climb the mountain a second time to collect God's commandments. Commandments that were meant to guide their hearts and to guide their hands as a new people with a new kind of freedom. But why is Moses up there so long, the people say? Maybe he's not coming back. So down in the base camp, what do they do? They start melting their Egyptian jewelry to make a golden calf. They want some representation of God. Something singular and something simple and something shiny to which they can direct their worship. 
something that makes better sense to them than whatever seems to be happening up there on top of that mountain that's taking way too long. Israel serves as one of the earliest examples of what social scientists now call the law of group polarization. That's a hot topic these days, isn't it? Polarization. And it shouldn't surprise you except that most of the piles of research are over 20 years old on this polarization thing. They were led in 1999 by Cass Sunstein at the University of Chicago School of Law. Piles and piles of social science being done to prove this to be true. This law basically states that when one group shares some basic similarity in thinking or opinion without any significant difference, they tend to become more biased and they move ever closer toward the most extreme position in that group. Isn't that interesting? Even more striking is the fact that their deliberation together even has a way of eventually making their shared viewpoint even stronger than the most extreme view held by one individual or subset in the group before they even began. The more time they spend together, the more extreme potentially it can get, the more they double down. This is because the growing polarization that happens in these groups, it tends to make those who might say, oh, wait a minute, who might contradict it and might temper it a little bit more reluctant to face the growing opposition that exists in that group. Isn't that fascinating? In other words, the squeaking wheel in a group doesn't tend to get more grease. It makes the other wheels squeakier. For example, when everyone's a little grumpy about leaving Egypt, remembering the food they ate there while glossing over their back-breaking suffering, the whole lot of them tend to become more grumpy. Grumpier than the most vocally grumpy person when it all began. And you see this play out over and over again in the wilderness. Or for some modern examples, people who tend to oppose gun control are likely, after discussion, to oppose it more vehemently. Or people who think it makes some sense for a biological man to compete against biological women in athletics, after deliberation, will tend to support it with even more enthusiasm. They might even lose the plot. In fact, they might just be on their way to extreme, even radical thinking. For 40 years, this is what Moses was dealing with on the ground. This is what he was attempting to lead. At Horeb, round two, Moses, in his anger at their idolatry, when he comes down to seize the golden calf, actually hears it before he even gets there, he shatters the first set of tablets on which the commandments were written. And this meant what? He would return a third time, trudging to the summit of the mountain with two fresh slabs to collect a fresh rendering of God's commandments. But that third time was heavier. It was holier even. He'll eat or drink nothing for 40 days. Note that. It's holier. While his emaciated frame stumbles back down the mountain with this, these heavy stones, Moses' face is now on fire, glowing with the glory of God. What I read in the story of Moses, every time I read it again, is the story of what it meant for Moses 
to learn what God means when he tells him, I am who I am. Defying all description. Moses acts upon his calling not merely from a place of obedience, but from bare feet on ground that is holy because of the God who is holy, the God who is other, who is set apart. And even though Moses is asking, God will not be squeezed into the categories and the conception with which Moses is trying to represent him to others. And this is what God is continuing to teach Moses throughout his life. The story of Moses is really the story of what it means that God is holy. And for a man leading God's people to learn that this holy God, this God who is set apart, wants above all things to be near him and to be near to his people, the people of his promise. It's this paradox that grounds the whole story holy God who wants to be near. It grounds the whole story and it becomes more vivid to me every time I read it and study the scholarship around it. So let's just focus on today's small bit for a few minutes and a few pieces within the story. Moses' first time on the mountain here, it comes after 40 years. He's 40 years in Midian. He's a fugitive from the law, though we find out later that everybody that was after him is dead, which is always good news, I guess. But he was a fugitive from the law after killing this cruel Egyptian slave driver. But this is all, again, lost. Uh, it's long past, and his impulsive, nearsighted efforts at social justice fell flatter than flat. He just had to run away. And now he's married with children and is in his usual territory shepherding the family flock, doing what he's really been doing for 40 years. He's in the wilderness of the mundane. It's the same old mountain with the same old sheep in the same old land. He's at altitude in Nowheresville. But on this day, he sees a strange controlled fire, and he stops. Because, hey, why is that bush burning? And it's not burning up. It's worth pointing out here that time and time and time again in Scripture's redemptive story, the presence and power of God are expressed in the idea or the presence of actual fire. There are just too many to list. In the New Testament, the letter uh, to the Hebrews actually summarizes what every Israelite who uh, came to understand but often forgot that Yahweh God is a consuming fire. He is unparalleled power, he is white-hot justice, and he is unsurpassed in his purity. But there's a paradox to it. There's a seeming contradiction to it. The bush isn't burning up. And this is what arrests Moses. This holy God, though, loves unholy people. And it's about to be enacted in Moses' presence in a place where he should have died. And we find out later he was going to die simply because he wasn't circumcised. And I guess everybody, maybe at this point, they forgot or it wasn't relevant. But there he is, unholy, in the presence of a holy God. And it turns out that this God's limitless power is not going to separate him from weakness. It actually draws him to weakness. And it draws weakness to him. His perfect love is expressed through patience and mercy, as we heard in the psalm today, even through humility and self-giving, as we'll find out in Jesus. This paradox captured in the burning bush is really a description of grace. 
We don't deserve God. We don't deserve to be near God. We don't deserve to know God, but it's that difference from us. It's our deficit that draws Him to us in His holiness. Because here's the thing. True holiness, holy, holy, holiness, doesn't negate everything else. Because whatever is not like that holiness, whatever is not like that holy God, needs God. And pure holiness, pure goodness, makes other things holy and good. This is the paradox. This visual paradox stops Moses in his tracks, and his encounter gets even stranger, doesn't it? Because twice the burning bush shouts his name, Moses, Moses, a name that means what? Drawn out. Because Moses was drawn out of the Nile by Pharaoh's daughter and really drawn out of, uh, of infanticide, the infanticide of Pharaoh, and then out of an imminent watery grave if nobody finds him. And now God is calling him by name and drawing him out again. Moses. Moses. He's calling him out of hiding. He's calling him out of exile. He's calling him out of waiting and a kind of wandering that's bordering on retirement. But God's not about to retire Moses. There's a reason why he drew him out of the Nile. He was drawn out for a reason then and for a reason now. Forty years had passed, but the plan in God's heart hadn't changed. Some of you need to hear that. It's probably not been 40 years, but you're still waiting on God. Or maybe you've forgotten. He's actually drawn you out too. It may not feel like it now, but it's a fact. So that obscure hiding place in the wilderness suddenly becomes the most important place on earth. Ground zero for the holiness of the infinite creator God. And here's this dude, and he's terrified. But the Lord offers a way that he can be in his presence. Stay there, Moses. Do not come closer, but take off your shoes. God is near, but no less holy. Moses is here too, so there must be a recognition. There must be a response. Because this isn't just the mundane mountain anymore. The Lord has made a way for Moses to participate and not be consumed. A way that will become the practice of priests in the temple. Shoes off on holy ground. But why? It might be as simple as this. Because shoes go everywhere else. They don't go here. Shoes trod and trample the familiar and the well-worn. They are for any day, and every day, and all day, but not this day, and not here, not this place. But there's another paradox in this. It's a seeming contradiction. This is not merely what's to be avoided or discarded, these dirty shoes. It's about what's invited and afforded Naked feet. The touch of Moses' naked feet on the ground of God's goodness. Connection. Intimacy. For a moment, and if only from the ankles down, Moses is naked and without shame in the presence of God. He's invited to be, but he hides his eyes in this moment. 
He hides his eyes. But God wants to show him something. He wants him to see what he sees. And when we think about this nakedness and we think about this intimacy, this connection right there with this holy ground under his naked feet, I'm reminded of St. Augustine who said, God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. This is that moment for Moses. The story tells us that Moses will hide his eyes, but God wants him to look with his own eyes. The Lord declares what he has seen, what he has heard, what he has known. He's seen the affliction of his people. He's heard the cries, their cries. He's known their suffering, which is a word of intimacy. It's not just I've thought about it, but I have felt it. I've known it. Enough is enough, he says. I've come down to bring them up. I have come down to bring them up. And that's the gospel in a nutshell. That is reverence, awe with intimacy and nearness, the intersection of heaven and earth, friends, where our lives are meant to be lived, where Moses finds himself before he takes one step, one step in the direction of his purpose. And the holiness of God. The nearness of God. The holiness of God means that whatever and whoever is not God needs God. And this holy God moves toward the needy. As He did with Moses, He moves through His people toward the needs of the world. He turns our eyes to see and He tunes our ears to hear and He tunes our minds, He turns our minds to know what He knows by teaching us, by His Spirit, by His Word, if we will draw near. This is why, you know, as, it, as in our epistle reading today uh, from 1 Corinthians 10, that Paul has absolutely no problem declaring that it was Christ all along there with Moses and through Moses. Christ all along who led the people in the cloud, who baptized them as they crossed the Red Sea, who fed them bread from His own hand, and who watered them from the rock. Jesus was that rock. It wasn't Moses, not really. It was the Savior, saving them through a servant. It was God Himself coming down to bring them up. Providing for His enslaved people through this man, through this leader, whom He will challenge and whom He will change. Moses rightly realizes his own weakness, his own ineptitude, Later on, he says, I, you know, I, I'm a man of stammering lips. I can't do this thing. He realizes the extreme impossibility of the task that God is setting before him, even though he had something that Egypt could offer. Who am I, he says, beginning in verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And the Lord said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You're going to meet me here again. And it's going to get heavier. And it's going to get holier. And this aging fugitive from Justice Shepherd with his, he finds out will be a miraculous staff in hand. He will himself burn with the glory and the power of God for the purposes of God. And he will not be consumed. 
the power and presence that he feared that should otherwise consume him will be with him. So village, you know, every Sunday we worship together in this same paradox. And it might not seem like it, and this might seem like maybe the mundane mountain or the valley or the normal place that you tread, the normal life that you walk, but we are worshiping together in the same paradox of our calling in the world, of reverence and intimacy, of holiness and grace. We revere the lion of the tribe of Judah, but we also know that he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We acknowledge the unsearchable depths of God's mystery and yet come to a communion table, to an agape feast where we touch and we taste ordinary things where Jesus promises to meet us. He says, this is my body. This is my blood. In some ways, it's just a hand holding bread, but it becomes a holy visitation of the risen Lord. Like Moses, the practice of God's holy presence, it grounds us and it changes us. These do more than just kind of posit ideas that we seek to live up to. Far from it. They shape our lives in a posture that's just appropriate to power. Appropriate to His power, but also His nearness, His closeness. He's closer than we are to ourselves. In Hebrews, the same herald of consuming fire I mentioned, who warns us to strive for obedience and for peace with everyone and calls us to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord, he says we have come to the Holy of Holies in the temple where the curtain that once symbolically divided a holy God from unholy people is torn in two. And because that veil was torn, because Jesus' body was torn, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And I'd put it this way to you. The goal of the Christian life is to live so deeply secure in God, because God is secure, and yet so deeply in awe of God, that as we just embrace this paradox... There is something about our lives that calls others around us to say, I want to take off my shoes too. What is this? What's going on? The desire is for others to worship with us in reverence at all. The desire that God has and is working through Moses in this moment is to draw his people into the same encounter with the living God who will be with them in the pillar of cloud and of fire. To know the grace of the God that finds us in the wilderness. Not to consume us in it as fugitives, but to call us as sons and daughters who get to share in His goodness and who are moved outward by His love for a world that is otherwise enslaved by sin and idolatry. The world He loves. You may be familiar with Dorothy Day. If you're not, you should get familiar with her. She was a singular woman, also founder of the Catholic Worker Movement. She once said that Christians ought to live in such a way that one's life would not make any sense at all if God did not exist. We might ask, what about our lives as we live them? Evidences that we believe in this God who is so holy that He is so close to the world He loves. 
if we claim to believe just one ounce, just one ounce of this gospel, then we have the same God who has actually lit little fires in our little lives. And this means that we are the living paradox now. Do you know that? You are. We are like Moses sent down the mountain, burning with the presence of God's Holy Spirit, but we are alive. We are more alive than we've even fully realized because the cross of Christ's suffering actually became the place where God's justice and holiness burned white hot against the wretchedness of sin. And yet it was God. It was Emmanuel himself enduring that holiness and that wrath even. It was God hanging there on the cross for us naked and lifted up to be near to us, to draw others near to Him. Vulnerable and available and so unthinkably holy in that moment that in His own scandalous exposure, we are embraced. We are embraced. And if this is true, then the words of the author author of Hebrews should give us renewed hope. And hopefully the willingness to pause in the mundane, to pause in in the mundane mountain or the valley that we're in, in the familiar and in what can often feel like a wilderness to take off our shoes again. And he writes this, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And that is fantastic news. Do you believe it? Lord, you are holy. And though I've spoken for probably 25 minutes here or so, there's a degree to which your holiness is unspeakable. And yet you have spoken to us. You have spoken in the world. You've drawn people like Moses and people like me, near to you. Lord, help us to take off our shoes, whatever that looks like in our life today, both together here. We know what it looks like as we come and draw near today as you draw near to us. But even as we go into our lives, I pray that you would help us to live on holy ground. Lord, to burn, not be consumed. That others might stop and take notice. Because you are with us. And you are who you are. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.